You are listening to the Tour des Flâneurs, the cycling podcast at the 2021 Tour de France, powered by Super Sapiens, energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Stage 2, today we are in Mur de Bretagne. Hello, my name is Richard Moore. Stage two of the Tour de France was today. We're going to be discussing it in tonight's podcast. I'm joined by the Roglic Whisperer, as she's been called, Kate Wagner. Hello, Kate. Hello. And the, I struggled a bit with this, the Arietta Whisperer. Uh, yeah. Well, Arietta Whisper, whispers more than I do, but yeah. I, I was trying I, to think, Francois, that, I mean, Jose Luis Arietta is your great pal, movie star, team star of the Netflix series, one of the stars of the Netflix series. We lost one today, unfortunately, Mark's still there. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I was trying to think of who, because you can coax from Arietta that the sort of, you know, you can you can prize him open in the way that Kate prized open Roglic in her in her couple, in her interviews with him, not the first one, but the second one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay, let, let's say, yeah, let's say you're right. <laughs> okay, let's say I'm right. Let's say I'm right. Um, well, today was the Mur de Bretagne, the Matthew van der Poel show, wasn't it? And not just the performance on the bike, but the the response afterwards. Very, very emotional. It's funny because, unfortunately, Daniel Freib's not here, but I'd love to know what Daniel made of today because he has struggled to connect with van der Poel on a, an emotional level as, as, a, as a bike rider but I don't think anybody could struggle to connect emotionally with van der Poel today um, it was all about his grandfather Raymond Poulador who died a couple of years ago he actually died when we were together um, touring England and, 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 and Wales and Scotland with our with our shows, didn't he? Yes, yeah, shortly before the pandemic, actually, it was November 2019. We were far from, you know, knowing what, what that the world would turn, you know, into lockdown or anything. But yeah, but but it was the, a changing of the guard in a way. I mean, Pulidor dying was at the end of an era. And um, yeah, and, and, and Mathieu van der Poel was the beginning of an era. And so today we saw, I well, just briefly, but I, I, I was really struck. The only time I stood any near Mathieu van der Poel was in Arrogate for the World Championships. And I was like 50, yeah, almost 50 centimeters away from him. And he was really strikingly... No social distancing in those days. No, he, was, he, he looked strikingly similar. I mean, the, the, the shape of his of his skull and of, of his face, he, he looked really really similar to to Raymond Poulidor it was it was really yeah scary in a way you know very impressive so yeah I I, I believe uh, it was emotional today and I think the way he runs uh, the way he rides is emotional as well he doesn't listen to his reason he does listen to his instinct which was what his grandfather was doing as well grandfather never wore the yellow jersey of course and Van der Poel will Tomorrow we will talk about Van der Poel in the first part. We're going to talk about and so increasingly intriguing. Only two days in, but it's already very interesting watching our, our favourite Slovenians, Pog and Rog. Kate, did you have a good day today? Yeah, this morning I talked to Wilco. The sleeper cell Wilco Kelderman briefly during the press conference. Uh, during, uh, sorry, in the mix zone. You've had your eye on Wilco Kelderman. You tipped him yesterday. He's, he's you, you knew something. There was uh, you talked about Van der Poel's instinct. Your instinct for Kelderman is so far proven correct yeah i mean i saw kelderman in the press conference before the tour started interesting some of the things that uh wilco kelderman said but he said that he's confident in his gc well the two of them are having a good a good tour so far um stage two then from peros guirec is that okay francois 
Peros Gerek. That's right. Beautiful little uh, town on the on the coast, um, with yachts in the in the harbour. It was very picturesque indeed. A small place, and a very low key start to the stage really because it was so small. Um, lots of crowds out in the course, but really it was it was pretty quiet there. Uh, 183.5 kilometres to Murder Britannia. Six climbs in total. Mark Soler was a, a DNS. We saw him finish yesterday very far back. Last man, he broke both elbows yes. in the crash. So, I mean, he did very well to finish. I don't know if well is the correct term, but he finished and is obviously out of the race today. Um, a six-man break formed. Anthony Perez, Edward Turns, Simon Clark, Jonas Koch, Ida Skelling and Jeremy Cabot. Um, and they got the, the usual, the now standard sort of three to four minutes. Gone are the days when these breakaways would get seven, eight, nine minutes, it seems. And then we saw, who else but Tim de Klerk on the front. Um, and he, uh, well, we heard from him in last night's episode talking about the efforts that he made on day one were equivalent, he said, to a, a big classic. Um, and there he was again today, um, making similar efforts again, I guess, for... <laughs> Julian Alaphilippe, and tomorrow it'll be for Mark Cavendish. I mean, <laughs> honestly, uh, I wonder if he'll get a day off at some point. The break was whittled down. I think Simon Clark came off, didn't he? Crashed at one point, which we'll hear from Victor Campenarts, his teammate, a bit later on, because I think they had quite high hopes for Simon Clark today, um, if only to go for the King of the Mountains jersey, but it didn't work out for him. We had Cabo and Toons at the front, and then with 21 kilometres to go, Toons attacked. And uh, well, he we were standing uh, in the village of Moor de Britannia before the first climb up the the climb up the Moor de Britannia. Is that no, 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 yeah, no, no? It's no, it's a, covered this last it's night. A, it's yeah, it's a climb in Moor de Britannia. Yeah, but yeah, so um, he gave a little wave to the crowd just before he was caught and first time up the climb. Uh, we saw an attack from Matthew van der Poel going for the bonus seconds at the top um, and he well he went from about two kilometres right from the bottom really uh, a very powerful attack um, got eight seconds bonus which you know brought him closer just ten seconds down at that point on Alaphilippe in the yellow jersey and behind him Pog, Rog and Alaphilippe it's now looking it's already looking quite familiar Pog and Rog shadowing each other and few bonus seconds there for Pog ahead of Rog. Tade Pogacar and Primoz Roglic. Occasional reminder that they have <laughs> they have actual names. Um, second and final time up, the murder, up the climb out of Murder Britannia. <laughs> well, we saw quite a lot of Ineos Grenadiers um, who had not a great day on day one, but today they seem to want to assert themselves and take a bit of control. And Richie Port did a lot of work on the lower slopes and then we saw an attack from Nairo Quintana um, looking looking good riding for a local team of course kind of forgotten man but um, he had his aero helmet on and clearly was up for today um, he had a go that did some damage and then we saw an attack surprisingly from Sonny Colbrelli the Italian champion a sprinter but also somebody who can be in contention on these finishes but I would have expected to see him a lot later on it's interesting because a few kilometers before that we saw Matej Mohoric really working at the front. Cobrelli just went too early. He but, did. Yeah. He did, but he said at the finish that he couldn't have in any scenario beaten Van der Poel. Um, Van der Poel is Van der Poel, he said. <laughs> Which is true. Which is true. <laughs> Van der Poel, a, 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 a searing attack, 800 metres to go. Um, it's pretty decisive, although there was a moment, I thought, where you know, after the initial attack, it looked like he might be brought back. We we saw Pogacar and Roglic sort of gathering behind him and 
the gap didn't look that big, but it, it stretched out and he won on the line very convincingly, pointed to the heavens, um, a tribute. He certainly it was all about his grandfather, Raymond Pulidor, today. So he was first on stage, Pog, Pogacar, second. He, he looks majestic. I spoke to Jeroen Swart this morning, the head, head of medicine at UAE Team Emirates, about Pogacar and uh, Mark Hershey. Uh, well, I'll maybe say a bit more about that later on, but he's just saying how, uh, how in, in what great form Pogacar is in, and the first two days have certainly demonstrated that. He was second on the stage, Roglic third, Wilco Kelderman fourth, and Julian Alaphilippe Philippe, fifth. On GC, Vanderpool leads Alaphilippe by eight seconds, followed by Pog, Rog, Kelderman, Haig, Jack Haig, riding very well, and Balka Molema. Um, Alaphilippe is now in the points jersey, Van der Poel in the King of the Mountains jersey. The losers today, Garant Thomas um, slipped 15 seconds, Superman Lopez, um, Miguel Angel Lopez was with him, and Lucas Hamilton, um, 20 seconds, another five seconds behind Thomas. He lost 20 seconds to some of the GC guys, and I spoke to Matt White this morning of Bike Exchange, and he said that he'd got his fueling wrong on day one. He's inexperienced his first tour and first time leading the team and he said he's in good form and it was just a mistake but today again lost a little more questions the other big losers today us because our predictions were way out and, mm. and we didn't we didn't include Van der Poel in our predictions yeah but it's because we uh, we try to vary you know our predictions to, to be honest well, we some days get them right some <laughs> days get them wrong so, no, well really we, we thought after what we saw yesterday but he talked about it he talked about um, not performed as well as you expected yesterday but we'll get back to it you forgot a very important fact about the stage uh, today at kilometer 45 we went through Pen, Pen Venon, it's a small village and uh, guess who has we a run the, that was on the road to nowhere wasn't it <laughs> yeah. guess Guess who has a house there? Now it's 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 pretty, it's pretty strange. Tina Weymouth, she's the uh, uh, Talking Heads bass player. She's had a house in the, in this place well almost forever because she's the granddaughter of a famous Breton writer called Anatole Le Bras. Uh, so you know Mathieu Van der Poel, um, you know uh, grandson of Raymond Poulidor, and Tina Weymouth is the granddaughter of Anatole Le Bras, who is a famous, fam- very famous historian and and Breton writer. So she's actually. Uh, a real Breton, and she goes every summer. So even in the times, in the you know highlight times of the Talking Heads, she would spend her summer holidays here in Brittany in Penvenan. The Cycling Podcast at the 2021 Tour de France, powered by Super Sapiens, energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Still guessing on fueling? Not sure what or when to eat and drink on rides that matter. Never again. Optimize your fueling strategy with real-time glucose data, actionable insight, and personalized analytics. We are here to help you achieve your performance goals. Go to supersapiens.com for more on how to track your energy levels and fuel for success. My name is Martijn Redegeld. I'm the nutritionist, the performance nutritionist of uh, Team Jumbo Visma. We work now with it for almost a year. And it's really a lot of learning that I, I gained from it. So in the, in the beginning, it was just like, yeah, we put the sensor on, on the arms of the riders or, or myself. And yeah, there was like certainly all kind of data popping up. Um, and we had no idea yeah, what, what it means, if it was good, if it was bad. And, and yeah, the biggest question was, how can we use this 
to improve something. So yeah, over time we get us more knowledge from it. Um, also with a lot of help from the Super Sapiens team. So they have really, really good guys there who are good with, with the big data, but also with uh, really the glucose physiology and metabolism. So that's really helpful. And at this moment, yeah, we are, we are still, I think, in the learning phase with it. But yeah, we, we try to, to find ways to improve actually uh, fueling strategies on the bike, but also mainly, yeah, uh, several re recovery aspects. And I think the, the Super Sapiens sensor gives us a great tool to bring some more data in, the, in those strategies. And, and I think until now it was mainly based also on the, the rider's feeling or also a bit of guessing. But with this tool, you, yeah, you, you can really have clear data on your glucose metabolism and that, yeah, that's really helpful in, in many ways, I think. Yes, thank you very much indeed to our title sponsor, Super Sapiens. Um, wearing my Super Sapiens monitor now. Uh, interesting this morning because I went for a bike ride before breakfast, something I very rarely do. It was fascinating to watch um, what that did to my blood sugar levels and then how they rocketed when I had the, the largest breakfast I've maybe ever had in the beautiful bed and breakfast we were staying in the last couple of nights. We are running a competition in conjunction with Super Sapiens. You can win three months worth of Super Sapiens sensors. If you go to thecyclingpodcast.com, you'll see how to enter. But basically, you need to send us in an audio clip of 60 seconds or less describing or telling us what you would do with Super Sapiens, why you would like to win this three months supply. Maybe it would help you achieve a, a cycling ambition, um, a particular target that you have. Let us know. And the, the best ones that we decide upon will win this fabulous prize. So do send us in your audio. And you also um, may well feature in the cycling podcast in this very slot. So listen, today was all about Matthew Van Der Poel in the end, wasn't it? And um, one little thing, one little point that you made there, um, Francois, um, talking about you know, Francophiles. I mean, he is, you know, obviously has a, a French, had a French grandfather, um, but it was interesting, he did a press conference in English, entirely in English, even when he was asked f questions in French. Yeah, I mean, because I think it's a rule now, uh, UCI races to, uh, even the tour, to speak uh, English as, as much as you can. Uh, he, he spoke, he's actually spoke French uh, on French TV. His French is pretty good. Yeah, his, his English is better actually. But no, he, he does speak a little bit of French. And his mother is French, of, of course. course. Yeah. Um, but um, I mean, what a performance! I mean, it's it's the type of performance that we've we've seen from him before. Um, the emotion was perhaps the thing that we haven't always seen from him before. Once again, it was Seb Piquet asking the questions. He's he's made a bit of a specialism of this, hasn't he? He did it with Sam Bennett at the Tour de France last year. He's done it with other riders too. He he asks questions and he lets the silence hang. And I think in into that void comes the emotion. And uh, Vanderpool was emotional for a long time. And even at the press conference, which was almost an hour after the finish, he was still very very emotional indeed. Well, maybe he was as well because, as as well, we all saw yesterday, uh, that the all of the Alpecin team was, you know, sporting the, well, a, a jersey that was quite similar to the Mercier 
uh, you know, the classical Mercier jersey that Raymond Poulidor was was wearing in his, uh, uh, you know, heyday. Uh, and and I guess he probably put too much pressure on, on himself on on day one with wearing this jersey, kind of being a real Raymond Poulidor lookalike. Uh, you know, even in 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 the in the way he was dressed, and 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 probably there was a, a little bit too much pressure on him yesterday to do what he did today. And he actually said so uh, after the race. He said he he had felt kind of a little kind of a block, you know, blocked by stress. He said, and 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 missing out probably kind of re, you know released the tension. And today nobody was expecting him to do what he did. To be honest, when when he went uh, on the first, there were two there were two ascents of the uh, of climb the Mur de Bretagne today. When he went for for the for the bonus in on, on the first climb, we we didn't really knew what he was doing. Like this always the, is often the case with Mathieu van der Poel. Was he going to try and break clear and and go for it all the way or and and well in the end I mean the eight if you look at the eight seconds he took off Julien Alaphilippe it's exactly the the lead he has on Alaphilippe now in in the um, uh, GC so well it, it it was both an emotional move and a very rational one I mean I mean it was it was tactically perfect I mean it's always easy afterwards to say I've done it on purpose and uh, it, it turned out well we, we, we'll never know exactly what, what was the intention but obviously was going for the yellow jersey I mean he said it was that was the intention to get the, the, the time in order to get the yellow jersey as well but there was a, a cost to it you know that it was a gamble because that effort may well have cost him in the end um, but you know I think there were a few factors today. His team were better today. They were they were kind of missing yesterday. Yes, it was a very hectic, chaotic, crash-ridden stage, which I think it, it may be it may be affected also his his uh, frame of mind coming into a very sort of technical finale and and a, a, a narrow little sort of corridor into the climb yesterday. He was badly positioned today. Seemed that the pressure seemed to have gone out of the race to some extent. It seemed more relaxed, and we'll hear Victor Campenarts say that a bit later on. That yesterday seemed to just release some of the the tension, the pressure. Those there were two terrible crashes, and perhaps everybody today was just a bit, you know, it was a bit more, a bit less kind of highly strung the peloton, and maybe that suited him as well. But his team were were very good today and played played an important role. One thing we could add to that is that uh, he said himself it was he actually went for it today and gave it his all because he said it was his only chance to yeah it was the only chance to take the yellow jersey the only day when he could do it and having having missed out uh, the day before I mean he, and and this is the kind of thing he does I mean he, he often looks kind of desperate I mean every, everything he does is never easy you know like like the tacking from 80k from the finish or or, or the way you know he tackle uh, you know he tackle some Sometimes the last climbs in the, you know, the straight Bianchi or other other races. I mean, the, the, it, it it only looks a, a kind of a vain effort he's doing. And and but this time, it, it, well, it, that's what he said. It, it was his last chance to do it, meaning probably implying that he, he probably won't, you know, hold to the, that yellow jersey uh, for very long. He said the time trial was how long he wanted to hold it till. No, so. that's it. No, knowing that uh, in the same time, it is it, probably going to to not. Well, it's probably not going to make it to Paris. He, he didn't say so because you never say so. But I mean, he has he has other goals and uh, uh, Olympic title is one of his goals. So, 
yeah, probably he won't finish the tour. Okay, I imagine. Well, he said, yeah, it's certainly he doesn't want to go go deep, and he does go deep, doesn't he, when he's trying to do something spectacular. Um, but Kate, I imagine that Matty van der Poel is. I don't imagine you have the same problem as Daniel in in in, in struggling to connect with van der Poel. I imagine he's a rider that you. I think I know that he's a rider that you enjoy watching and whose talent you appreciate. Definitely. I mean, for me, I think Vanderpool is sort of the antithesis to what we see, for example, not to dig, but at, you know, Team Ineos, where it's this very professionalized, very linear way of writing with like a clear objective and a clear t- team plan. Matthew Vanderpool, he, I mean, he rides with his heart. Everything he does is this raw, visceral burst of, of passion and of drive that really harkens back to, I think, to an older day of cycling when things weren't so professionalized, when we didn't have things like the train, for example. And I think that's why people like him. He's a romantic at heart, I think. And I think the way he rides is romantic. And I think he brings that excitement of cycling, that visceral, like, can he do it kind of edge of your seat riding that makes you know people love him. And even if his attacks fail, which they sometimes do spectacularly, it doesn't matter because at least he tried, at least he did something, at least he gave all of himself in some way. And I think that's what makes him so beloved in the peloton, even though like when he comes into press conferences, he's very cool. He's almost stoic and kind of a hardened guy with his icy blue eyes and this really strong brow, uh, intimidating character. But not today. There was a, no. a vulnerability to him today that I haven't seen before. And it's interesting you say that about his, uh, you know, other riders in the peloton admiring him. I think that's true. And Actually, let's hear from one of our audio diarists. We've got four riders keeping audio diaries for us at this tour. Ben O'Connor of AG2R, who crashed um, yesterday. We didn't mention that last night, but he crashed. And we'll hear from him in an episode um, of Kilometer Zero coming up in a few days. Um, We've also got Tim DeClark, who we heard from last night. And Connor Swift, as well, um, is keeping a diary for us for the second year. But Victor Campenarts of Quebec, next hash, as they're now known, he sent us in a dispatch tonight and he mentions van der Poel and it's interesting to hear uh, the view of one of his uh, competitors in the peloton today we had simon in the break was a good shot for the possibility for the mountain jersey because this fight was still uh, still open for today unfortunately uh, simon crashed out of the breakaway it was hectic but luckily a little bit less hectic than yesterday. There were also less crashes. But of course, everybody trained well and everybody's in a good shape. The pace is not easy. And what we saw today of Vanderpool is, I think this is what makes cycling exciting. This is what makes Vanderpool exciting. But he also gives an unexpected plot to the race. And that's, I really like this about him. Really nice to see. And uh, the crowds, is quite incredible. Um, we're still in some kind of a pandemic, but um, I discovered yesterday that in France it's not obligated anymore to wear face masks in uh, all plein air. The crowds are just everywhere and every hill is full of crowds and yeah, it's, it's amazing. I, I cannot imagine what a, what a tour without COVID would be like. In a, in a situation and you pause uh, in a conversation and you pause a village just have to pause the conversation because you just cannot understand each other anymore of uh, because of the crowd going crazy Mathieu van der Poel was emotional about his grandfather who never 
uh, held the yellow jersey, but it's not the first, as you you know, you all listening listening to us, uh, citing experts and historians, and you know, it's not the first yellow jersey in the family. Uh, Audrey Van der Poel, with Mathieu's father, held the yellow jersey for one day in 1984, so it'll be the second in the collection. But we can hope that maybe, uh, well, Mathieu Van der Poel will hold to the yellow jersey a little bit longer than his father, who apparently keeps his jersey in a box in the attic. Science in Sport is supporting the cycling podcast at the 2021 Tour de France. Science in Sport, fueled by science. Thank you very much indeed to our sponsor, Science in Sport. If you'd like 25% off all your Science in Sport products, go to scienceandsport.com and enter the code SISCP25. You might fancy some of their tiramisu energy bakes. I fancy some of them. Um, but Everything you could possibly need is on the Science of Sport website to uh, fuel your rides. Um, SISCP25 is the code. Now, we're running a competition in conjunction with Science of Sport as well. Super Sunday competition to guess the the winner of each Sunday stage. Um, That includes today. I'm sure lots of you picked Matthew Vanderpool. We'll pick one name out of the Cycling Podcast casket. We can't do that yet because Lionel Burney is in charge of this competition and he's He's taking a little camping uh, weekend. So as <laughs> soon as he gets back from camping, he will pick a winner and we'll maybe be able to announce that in tomorrow night's episode. You'll win £80 worth of science sport goodies. If you want to enter the competition for next Sunday, um, which will be up to teen in the Alps, go to thecyclingpodcast.com and you can find out how to enter there. Um, so the other uh, the other kind of intrigue so far in the race behind the two spectacular stage winners Julian Philippe and Mathieu van der Poel um, is the the kind of the the closeness of last year's top two uh, Primoz Roglic and Tadej Pogacar really inseparable watching each other all the time I mentioned earlier that I'd spoken to Jurgen Swart at the start this morning and he was saying that he thought that Pogacar was capable of winning on Saturday and and didn't because he was just concerned with watching Roglic and I think the feeling is mutual isn't it they are joined at the hip at the moment I'd say that's probably accurate if you're going to follow a wheel and you're Roglic which wheel would you follow if you think about it I mean but they have known each other a really long time Uh, I believe they first met at the 2017 world championships in Bergen in Norway when Tade was a junior and Roglic was a senior. And uh, shortly after that, I'm sure Roglic was keeping tabs on him beforehand. And uh, even later, you know, of course, Pogaccia had known about Roglic for a long time. He said in an interview in Le Keep, and I'm paraphrasing, not a direct quote, uh, he said, you know, I've been a Roglic fan for a long time. I've watched him since I was like, you know, 15, 16 years old, shouting at my television, like cheering him on. And he said at the end, he said to think that it was I that did this to him, that this being winning the Tour de France, it's like filled me with a lot of emotion. Uh, but that sport is essentially what he said. And so they kind of have a little complicated thing going on. I think there's sort of a mentor-protege relationship. Like Tade has said multiple times that like he rides with Roglic. They train together. They train together in Slovenia. They train together in Monaco. They train together in Tenerife. Uh, and I asked Roglic about it once, uh, and he said... It was the right thing to do, to be close with Tere because he was younger and he was also Slovenian. But at the same time, we are two different people and we are two different writers and we win on our own merits is basically what he said. So it's really interesting to see how their friendship, uh, their little companionship has changed. And I definitely think it already has changed because 
there's no more Pog in the Wheel of Rog, is there? It's Rog now in the Wheel of Pog. I mean, one is de- definitely, he's now not his little friend, but a direct and clear threat and an enemy. And so whether that means that they won't be friends anymore, I don't know. But I definitely think it means that Roglic is looking at him differently this tour than he did last time. Well, it's probably clever to do that. I mean, if if, if you're Roglic and last year you dominate, dominated the whole tour only to lose it in extra time, <laughs> in a way, you know, it, it, it's to put pressure on on Pog. Maybe the the, the real the, the good thing to do is to is to you know be on his wheel all the time. Yeah. Like you, you're not. You know, you, I'm here. You're not going to it's drop me this time. Last yeah, year, isn't absolutely. It? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. In many ways. So uh, yeah, I, I think you know maybe a way to try to you know topple. Uh, Pog is 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 to to try yeah you know act on his nerves a little bit because la- last year he, he had you know kind of innocence and mm-hmm. and you know and, and the, the victory of the of, of the surprise and youth but but now now the pressure is on him it's not on Rock that much anymore and the other the other little funny thing you find if you look at the results of their results where, where the, their placings in 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 Tour de France stages in the last tour and this tour they keep swapping. Places. There's always one top of the other, or one like yesterday. Mm. Rog was on top of Rog, of Rog, and and today it, no Rog was on top of of Bog, and today it's the other way around. So you know, th- this little inside fight between the two is yeah, it's going to be very intriguing for a long time. Our and Slovenian the, Cold War. Yeah, <laughs> and, and, and there's this there's this hierarchy already developing just just two days into the race. Um, where you know we fancied this very open race, but these two pretty challenging stages have drawn out. Um, you know, obviously Pogacar and Roglic as the GC riders, who who just seem to be on a, a very slightly higher step to, to everybody else. And there's already daylight between them. And and you know, I mean, Garen Thomas is now, you know, almost 30 seconds down, which is is you know is not insignificant at all. Um, and the you know Carapaz is 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 still up there, but also having lost uh, a bit of time too. So, you know the signs are pretty ominous for the race that we could just see another shootout between Roglic and Pogacar. It seems ridiculous to say that two days into a three-week race, but it's so often the case, isn't it, that these tough early stages sort of do set the tone. Mm. What's astonishing also about Thomas is that he did was not caught up in the first crash at all. But both Pog and Rog were, so mm. and you know he has his super team or whatever, and it's it's just kind of fascinating to see that they tried. You know, we saw today just they had a struggle for dominance at the head of the race. You know, forcing out guys like Matej Mohoric, forcing out uh, you know the lead out guys from Alpes and Fenix who were all all trying to get at the front, all trying to maintain control of the race, and they succeeded in doing that for quite a few kilometers, if I can recall correctly. And at the end, it came to nothing. Yeah, it's also credit to the to the Breton monuments of uh, cycling, uh, because the, the the first time we really went to Mur de Bretagne was 2011, uh, the Cat 11s uh, was was you know. All the guys who would be the main uh, protagonists in that tour or, or were already there in Brittany in those, you know, new, with these l'Alpe d'Huez, as they say, of Brittany. And and in a way, you know, it's, 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 it's of course, much shorter and there's no no corner whatsoever. But in the same time, it's true. I mean, the, 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 these little climbs by Tour de France standards proved not not decisive, but really good testing of of, of the the strength, you know, uh, at play. It's interesting, you mentioned uh, the 2011, the first time 
the race came. Although they, they, no, no, they, they, they went through Mill de Bretagne before in 1947. Yeah, it I did. Believe. It did. Oh yeah, yeah. You were at time trial, but yeah, no, it went through. 139 kilometer time trial. Yeah, but it never <laughs> finished. It never finished. Yeah, that's right. But it never finished at the top of the climb. No. in the past. That's 2011 was the first year, and that's interesting because that's when Kate's cycling knowledge currently goes to extends to, doesn't it? Kate? <laughs> I mean, I mean, we we've been learning. Um, Kate, about your immersion in cycling. We mentioned last night's podcast that you you really kind of fell in love with the sport at, during the tour last year. And so, yeah, I've been scratching my head wondering how you how you have gained so much knowledge so quickly. And you've you've kind of revealed how how you've done it. It's it's a quite remarkable story. Okay, so not to sound like a total loser here, but uh, yeah. So that season, the 2020 season, after of course the Tour de France, and it was you know Worlds, and then Liège, or the Ardennes Classics, and then uh, you know, our late Giro, ugh, all the way through the Vuelta into November. Well, I would wake up because I live in America. We'd wake up at you know five in the morning, six in the morning, sometimes seven. The Vuelta started a little later, so it was nicer. Uh, and I would watch cycling, uh, sometimes you know three, four, five hours in the morning. Then I would work as a writer, uh, writing about architecture, whatever I was writing about. And then I would work until six, seven. And then from six to seven to midnight, I would watch old races. And so I started, you know, at, you know, last year, that time, 2019, I watched every Grand Tour and Monument back to 2011 that way. Amazing. Either in highlights or like if it, the full thing was available. I mean, this was also, of course, not to, you know, to it was quasi legal methods, I guess. Sometimes, sometimes it was YouTube highlights, whatever I could get. And so I watched all the way back to, to 2011. I mean, I mean, we've been teasing you about yeah. you know not not knowing anything, therefore, about the 2010 Tour de France, <laughs> or never having encountered Andy Schleck. But um, <laughs> but actually, you, you've you've done a bit more than that because you've been reading books as well about some of the the older history, and you know you know who Eddie Merckx is. And... Oh yeah, well yeah, um, there's a there's a period when my husband before we would go to to bed, we would watch like an Eddie Merckx documentary, or we watch you know, like a Sunday in Hell. You know, brilliant. The Remco Evenepoel here of the of the uh, of cycling journalism, I think, but it's very impressive. I mean, you've certainly um, gained an awful lot of, of knowledge and understanding of the sport. Um, so there's a, there's a tip out there if anybody wants to really uh, um, immerse themselves. It's every monument and every grand tour. Yeah, I mean, of course, I don't know who won E3 Saxobank in 2012. But what? Yeah, well, well, a great okay, but there are some really like notable either. ones that I do know. For example, like Gen Vebel game 2015 when the crosswinds blew Gary Thomas off the road and Peters again won later on. You know, I watched that one. Hmm. You know, once there's I have colleagues. Hang on, did Luca Paolini not win that one? I thought that was Peters again. Oh, you could be right. I don't know. Hmm. You know, you'll know better than I feel like I just <laughs> watched that one. Yeah, so it's like watching uh, Netflix series. You know, Tour de yeah. France, Tour de France season 107. <laughs> yeah. I thought that was really weird. Well, we watched like me and. And my husband watched the 1999 Tour de France and being American. You mm. know. Oh, wait till you get to 1998. You're in for a real shock. <laughs> <laughs> no spoilers. Oh, I, God. I know what happens oh, that one. This might be this might be your first and last Tour de France once you get once you get to 98. We've got a very good uh, episode of Kilometer Zero all about the 1998 Tour de France. We can play you that in the car. Francois talking about his role in in uh, in revealing the the, the greatest drug scandal the Festina affair yeah yeah I made it to that yeah okay good good <laughs> uh, Francois it's time for culture cultural uh, points of the day um, we're, we're, in my continuing quest to become uh, more 
adept in, I was going to say fluent, but that's a hopeless ambition, uh, more adept in French. Uh, we're going to have a word of the day um, mm-hmm. for tomorrow. Um, what's our word of the day for tomorrow? It's Orient, because we're going to Lorient. And it's funny because you, you, you might think Lorient, uh, you know, well, why is Lorient called Lorient? It's, it's, uh, I hope you're going to tell us. <laughs> <laughs> I am going to tell you. Well, it's, it's funny because Lorient actually means what it means. Lorient in, in French means, well, it does in other languages as well, but it means east, you know. Mm-hmm. And Lorient is one of the w- most western towns in Europe and it's called Eastern, you know, which is pretty it's just ironic. Yeah, which is pretty odd. Or was it named by the Americans? <laughs> <laughs> it was who it discovered it. It wasn't it. Well you didn't discover everything. But uh, no it, it was actually it's actually not the case. It was it's actually a, 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 a town that was actually built from scratch in the seventeenth century by the the, the, the Sun King Louis the Fourteenth, Louis Catorze. Yeah they, they decided they needed to have a big port and a big military port there. Uh, you know, in Brittany, because obviously at the time the, the only enemy we had was North, and there was the Brits. You know, so so we're not the Scots. Well, not, not the Scots. I mean, the old alliance yeah, yeah, and yeah, everything. Yeah. We, we 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 were we were always friends, and and actually Louis the Fourteenth, you know, helped as you know uh, yeah. the, the the Scottish kings too. But it's another story. But <laughs> yeah, so so Lorient was actually created by uh, in in the Louis the Fourteenth time in 1666, and it was actually uh, meant as a port for la compagnie. Oriental des Andes, uh, which was you know created at the time to to kind kind of colonize the, the what not not the West Indies but the East Indies in that case you know, and um, and it was actually and they were and they were building uh, a, a a big ship there called the Soleil de Lorient and 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 the name of the ship be- became the name of the town, Lorient. I mean it was kind of you know summed up in Lorient and that the town and Lorient became you know the the so. Yeah, the, the east is the the name of of a, of a western town, which is pretty strange. And Orient is an interesting word because in French and in in other languages we, could, we have this word Orientalism. Uh, Orient is, is always been seen, uh, you know, by European ah the Far East like something exotic and mysterious, and uh, and you know, and, and there's there's an old uh, there's an old notion of the mysterious Orient, and you know, with all these strange customs and stuff, and and it. Seen from the, today, uh, you know the way Orient was. Uh, it doesn't mean a thing, you know, to call these places the East. It, it, it's a very re- Euro-centered, uh, you know, vision of the world. The, the, the Lorient. I mean, the East is the East of of France, of of of, of Britain, of. But it, it's 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 the, it's the West of of of, of America. I mean, yeah, it, it's it, all it relative. Depends. It's all very rel- relative. <laughs> but the, the the word the word Orient stuck as the name of the place. Uh, when once again you're always east of somebody. So I mean, the the the, the, the very notion of Orient is is a reminder of well colonization, imperialism, and all the the, the you know all the plagues um, our, of our uh, ancient history. So I think you know for for a town, a military town to to be called Lorient reminds us that you know the the navies of France at the time were were doing well kind of a you know dirty job. Oh, this is good. Learning, learning a lot here. Learning a lot. Um, and uh, Francois, we have a cheese of the day today. Mm-hmm. You found one. Yeah, there, there, there are actually quite a few in in uh, in, um, in in Brittany because. Uh, 
the, the, the thing is, my impression was that the, what I said yesterday, that we, we were starting with, with Brittany and, and, and with a region that there is no, no cheese. I think local farmers uh, thought the, the same. Why don't we have cheese? You know, And some of them decided, well, we are going to, to make cheese. The, the most famous uh, farm doing cheese in, 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 in Brittany, they've been doing this since 1987, the year when Stephen Roach was winning the tour. Uh, I haven't made it there yet. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's but, a real treat, by the yeah, way. You, you you'll enjoy that. The, you can you'll enjoy that one. History as well. In, 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 <laughs> you know, uh, I'm uh, like those in time. Yeah. <laughs> um, and and uh, so it's a farm near D9, a place called Ruka, and uh, it's it's the Dale. It's called D A R L E Y farm. And and when you look at all the the, the great books about cheese in France, they're always mentioned as the Breton uh, cheesemaker. So that there's, there are, there's now three generations of them have been making cheese, and they're making all sorts of different cheese. They, they're, they're, but since there is not a real Breton cheese, them they're making cheese uh, that's been made elsewhere. They, they have two different sorts of bleu. You all know bleu. It's like like Roquefort, these little blue mm. bits uh, in the middle of the of the crust. And they're making very good bleu. It's, it's very famous. And 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 the most famous uh, cheese is of course of course called Darley. I mean that that's their names. That that there's there's other little uh, brands of cheese in 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 uh, in, uh, in Brittany. One near Rennes. We're going. We'll be going near Rennes tomorrow. It's called uh, Petit Billy. Uh, but it's uh, but it's an industrial cheese. So I've I've been trying to get away from 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 this. And there's another one, a uh, small cheese from Brittany that's that's done in very very um, uh, small uh, uh, portions and quantities called Kyle Brace, which means the Breton the Breton stone. And but it's the same. The guy who's doing this went to the southwest of France and 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 he tried to reproduce what's been done down there. And if you if you know the south of France in the Cévennes, you've got a, a cheese called Pelardon and the Kyle Brace looks a lot like Pelardon. So if you're going to Brittany looking for, she- for cheese and, and local cheese, well, go for the Dale farm. You'll find them on, on the internet and they're on markets uh, all week, you know, s- selling their cheese, which is, uh, unfortunately, I didn't have the chance to taste it yet, but um, please do because apparently it's excellent. Well, we're looking ahead to tomorrow's stage, to Ponte V, uh, where... Um, uh, one of the, the residents there is Audrey Cordon Rigaud, and she will feature in tomorrow's first episode of Kilometre Zero, um, all about Brittany. We're going to hear from David Godou, Cyril Gauthier, um, and Audrey Cordon Rigaud, um, and uh, and a lot of Francois talking about Brittany and the, the, the kind of the, the deep roots of cycling in Brittany. Um, so that will be out tomorrow morning, the first of our five weekly episodes of Kilometre Zero at the Tour de France. Tomorrow should be a sprint stage. No reason at all to think that it won't be a, a bunch sprint. And, uh, I mean, there will be a lot a lot of eyes on Mark Cavendish, of course. Um, his team, obviously, going into the stage on a bit bit of a high after the opening to the, the race. He's got an incredibly strong uh, team to support him. Casper uh, Askreen, Michael Morkov, of course. And there was a sprint today, um, an intermediate sprint at 85 kilometres, um, where... The bunch were going for seventh place. Caleb Ewan uh, got that ahead of Cavendish. Um, Jasper Phillips and Morkov was was fourth from the bunch across the line. Then uh, Arno Demar, Buhani, Sagan, Matthews. So they were all they were all having a little go at that. Um, 
you know, some riders who will be certainly in contention for the the green jersey. It was interesting to see Cavendish having a go, and I wonder if it was just to to try out their sprinting legs before tomorrow, um, and whether there's anything to read into the fact that Caleb Ewan won it because he's probably the favourite, I would think, for tomorrow. Would oh, you agree? Oh yeah. No, but by the way, the way he, he he saved his strength, you know. Well, I mean, he was like many others uh, involved or halted by the crashes, and you know, it, it was far too important for him to stay clear and to stay safe. And so he, he, he took it re- really easy for the first couple of stages to stay out of trouble. And yeah, obviously, he'll be the the the, the leading favorite tomorrow by far. I think. Can I be a dissident? <laughs> sure, of course. I'm yeah. gonna say I know he messed up today, but I'm gonna say Sonny Crobrelli tomorrow. Yeah, well, he looks in shape. Mm. Yeah, but maybe uh, yeah, maybe he's, tr- he's trained and changed a little bit as a, as, a, as a rider from. Yeah, because he know. tends to do better on those punchy climbs that right. can get rid of some of the guys. Kind of like a Peter Peters again scenario. I'm, uh, after your success with Wilkin Kelderman, I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna go with that. Probably include him in our predictions tomorrow. Yeah, well. Thanks for that. Um, well, we'll. I mean, something a bit different. Um, a day off the kind of GC watch that we've been on. Nice. Um, which will be good. Um, not that. Don't enjoy that. <laughs> but um, <laughs> before we go, are we going to play us out with a, a song tonight, Francois? Or? Well, actually, well, actually, I recorded that song uh, at home ah, called yes. Belle Ile en Mer. Let's play out with that. Then, yeah, shall we? You, you, yeah. So, so it's with, with my guitar and everything because I didn't bring my guitar with me here on the tour because I, I mean, all these guys have their bikes. Uh, You're not here on holiday. Yeah, that's right. All these guys have their bikes <laughs> in the boots, and I, 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 you know, my my guitar is far too precious to uh, to share boots with. <laughs> With bikes. Well, tell us the song though. So it's called Billy Longmer, and because actually we'll be we'll be going around the the, the, the coast uh, of of Brittany, and 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 we'll see when we reach reach Kibon and all these places. We'll see Billy Longmer uh, in the distance. Billy Longmer is is the is the actually is the largest island in Brittany, and it's also the largest island the tour has never visited because it's it's almost impossible to. It's a forty-five minute uh, boat ride to get to Belle-Ile and it's 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 too small for for a for a bike ride, I, I guess. Even though you, you could, you can only normally, if you're not a resident, you can only ride bikes in Belle-Ile. The Cars are not allowed. But it's a, it's a great place. So, and and it's a song by uh, a singer called Al, uh, Laurent Voulzy, and it was was written by a guy called Alain Souchon. He's a very famous French singer, and he lives in La Trinité sur Mer. That's just you know across the pond from Belle-Ile, and we, we'll be going through La Trinité sur Mer. Uh, so no, it's very famous. It's, it's a song that's very famous in France it was voted the best song of the uh, of the you know uh, second half of the 20th century in many polls so well listen to me singing this song <laughs> <laughs> we will do for the moment thank you very much Francois thanks thank you Kate thank you Ça part au mois des souvenirs d'enfance En France, violence Manque d'indulgence par les différences que j'ai Café, léger, pour les mélanger C'est pas les petits enfants Tout comme vous, je connais ce sentiment Solitude et d'isolement. 
Et vous ne savez pas 